0: Australians are still coming to grips with the allegations in Justice Paul Burton's report that Australian soldiers committed extensive war crimes in Afghanistan. Justice Burton produced the report on behalf of the Inspector General of the ADF and has recommended that 25 Australian soldiers be formally investigated by police in connection with the unlawful killings of 39 Afghan civilians or unarmed prisoners. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Sociologist Dr. Samantha Cromfords played a key role in this process when she carried out a series of penetrating and sometimes traumatic interviews with soldiers from the Special Operations Task Group who said they witnessed or took part in atrocities. Here she talks to Brendan Nicholson, editor of Aspie's commentary site The Strategist, about how a dangerous warrior culture developed unchecked and what needs to be done to stop it happening again.
1: Good morning, Samantha. What's emerged in the Brereton report is truly shocking. I think even more shocking than a lot of people who were fairly close to the situation actually expected. Given that you played a key role in in having this whole investigation started after being called in by the then Army Chief, uh, Angus Campbell, and the head of special operations, um, General Singleman. Were you surprised at how much uh, Brereton has uncovered or did you feel there was more to uncover?
2: I wasn't surprised, sadly. I was, I think I was surprised by the tone of the inquiry, by how much effort was put into trying to explain how these issues may have manifested, but the... I guess the content of the alleged crimes didn't didn't surprise me.
1: There's been references to the content of the Brereton report as reflecting Australia's My Lai or Australia's Abu Ghraib. Now they were terrible incidents or terrible episodes, but they they happened spontaneously and in, and in some isolation, or they appear to have. What happened with the Australian Special Forces appears to have gone on for quite some time and appears to have been condoned at some levels, perhaps by people who didn't actually understand the consequences of what was going to happen. But how do you believe this actually built up and happened?
2: I'm not sure if condoned is the right word. Dismissed, perhaps, or not truly believed. I think I've certainly spoken to people where, now, on you know, in hindsight, they say, oh, yeah, I heard I heard a story about something but I just didn't quite, you know, it didn't sound right, didn't sound real, so they hadn't given it as much credit as they perhaps should have now. And I also think that, you know, in isolation some of these alleged incidents, you know, might say they are shocking but they might have seemed in isolation or they could have been explained or justified but when you put them all together, It's that pattern over time that then starts to reveal something that is quite shocking and entrenched. And I think the the turnover of COs, of of commanders at different levels, they just perhaps didn't have that broader perspective of of what was going on.
1: One of the big questions that's going to continue to be asked, until there are some answers, I imagine, um, is just who did know and how far up the chain did the knowledge go? Now, would it have been widely known within a regiment like the Special Air Service Regiment, or, or would it have been kept right down to patrol commander level?
2: I mean, it depends what you what you're referring to. I mean, alleged war crimes. If pe- people knew that they were occurring, um, you would certainly hope that that wasn't you know people weren't, weren't looking away. But I think where where there is a, a you know a collective ca- accountability. Is in the normalisation of just very blurred boundaries and blurred, you know, what the, the rule the rules were blurred for special forces. That's kind of quite widely known. That there were a different set of rules for them, different set of norms. There were issues of misconduct going on for a long time, perhaps at a you know much lower level, whether it was to do with drugs or alcohol, collecting souvenirs. There were these sort of these things happening, and I think that all added to this sort of iterative. You know, normalisation of deviance that uh, you know has led to well, you know what we're now looking at.
1: Well, look, the former so as they call him, the commander of special operations, uh, Major General Jeff Singleman, has um, declined to be interviewed by a lot of people. He doesn't want to talk about publicly about what's happened. Though I understand he did talk to the inquiry. It it appears that that within a very short time of being appointed as the Special Operations Commander Australia, Singleman became aware that really bad things had happened. And I think he went to Angus Campbell and and they then called you it. And and you did this extraordinary work at helping him uncover it. But I also understand that he had received, he'd asked for information from individual soldiers within the SAS, and he'd received a very large number of statements that all exposed startlingly bad things. Mm. How could that happen, that somebody comes in and so quickly becomes concerned about that sort of situation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the history of that command and perhaps some of the gaps in leadership leading up to General Sengelman's appointment, then you know, it starts to make sense perhaps why things may have been overlooked. Also, I, I mean, I think one of the most, one of the interesting things for me in the Brereton Inquiry report that stuck out was a line where he says you know, one of the ongoing obstacles to cultural change in the command or in across special uh, operations will be the influence of outsiders or, you know, whether it's it's those sort of SAS alumni or, SF alumni, um, Afghanistan veterans who are very protective of the reputation Mm -hmm. of Special Forces and protective of sort of brand SAS and of their legacy from the time that they were there. And I know that General Sangleman faced that obstacle while he was trying to. Uh, create significant change and really try to understand the extent of the issues that were uh, possibly occurring. and And I think it is it is a very true statement that that will be one of the biggest ongoing barriers to true to to really comprehensive change.
1: You've worked with the military for a significant time. You've been involved in this incredibly difficult task. Do you believe that organisations like the SAS Regiment and a commando regiment that might have been at the heart of it as well can actually be reformed. Um, and I, I mean can they can they be changed and, and, and straightened out? Or do you believe that the problems are so entrenched and so difficult that the only solution would be to disband them and start again? I, I
2: think it can change. I don't think I don't think it has to be disbanded, but I think it has to be. You know, it has to have some sort of significant changes across a number of dimensions and, and a, lot, a lot of those are already in train. I mean, changes to who they select, how they select, how they train, how they educate, who they promote, who and how they reward people, all of those things need to, um, you know, need to be addressed. Otherwise they won't be, you know, they, they, they just won't achieve the change that they need. Certainly getting rid of the people who perhaps still hold on to uh, or who are, who are resistors to that change. And I think, you know, looking at who they celebrate and glorify outside of the organisation also needs to be examined.
1: Now, how do you identify people like that? Like, um, you know, there, there have been people, well, apparently at least one or possibly more, there must have been more than one, uh, serving uh, SAS member was part of that Instagram account, which was sort of promoting the idea that the army should be allowed to kill and uh, basically rejecting the ideas and the philosophy that drove the Brereton report. People do seem to have been very clever in snowing both psychologists who tried to, who argued that they, or examined whether they should be sent back to Afghanistan or allowed to go back to Afghanistan when they badly wanted to, And also they appeared very clever at snowing inquiry officers who did inquiries into particular incidents and then basically came up with the answer that there was nothing to see here. How do you actually break through that?
2: Mm. And have uh, truth in reporting. Again, I think it's, I mean, it's clearly difficult when you have people who are (laughs) um, exceptional at, at concealing there, there just has to be much stronger mechanisms with which those those assessments are made, I think. So maybe it's not, you know, a one-on-one with a psychologist perhaps now. It's just it's not enough. I mean, even that needs to be looked at, I think, um, in a lot more detail around how it could be done differently.
3: Sam,
1: we, we, we're hearing more and more that um, these soldiers were sent back too many times and, and that was the cause of it. Well, you know, we, we've had situations where Australian soldiers and we, you look at the Western Front, 1914-1918 war, and you've got a number of massive armies and in industrial-scale warfare, soldiers being machine-gunned and bombarded for, for four years. You would think, you know, did, did that drive them all to rush off and cut children's throats? How big a part... Did going back to Afghanistan actually play in the levels of atrocities that we've seen in the Brereton report?
2: I mean, I, I think I have a, I certainly have a problem with that assertion that that was, you know, part of a or, or you know, had, had a cause. I, I think, I mean, I think. Uh, I'm sure that what uh, General Campbell said in his uh, press conference, one of the findings is that of the people who did, uh, um, you know, allegedly or the sort of alleged perpetrators, that they'd been uh, deployed a maximum of five times over, I think, about a seven-year period. So it's certainly not the, you know, 10 to 12 deployments that people are, are talking about. And I think there was a, you know, you need to examine what the behaviours of those people was like when, it, when they weren't deployed. Was it consistent? Were there levels of, of misconduct occurring? W- you know, was it just on deployment? There are a number of, of questions there around what else was happening.
1: Do you believe that what we've seen at the Brereton is just the tip of the iceberg? Like, did you get the impression from the, the conversations that you had with personnel that it was much broader than we've seen? We're talking about 19 soldiers and, and 30-something episodes. Do you, do you feel and then look? I imagine this was intensely difficult to investigate. Do you believe it's the tip of the iceberg, and that worse was actually happening, or is it just what's proven?
2: I believe that there we probably haven't seen the you know extent of it captured in the Brereton report. That there is likely more, perhaps not as extreme, perhaps as different. Yeah, you know, there there could be a range of incidents that occurred of which, you know, in the Brereton Inquiry they're they're really just looking at the ones that, you know, where people can be prosecuted and there's enough evidence. But I, I certainly think that there will be some way to go before we really have seen uh, the, you know, the, the true extent of what, what has occurred.
1: And what about people who haven't been or won't be prosecuted, people whose stories perhaps weren't told and behaviour wasn't exposed? who've come back to Australia, they may still be in the army or they may have left, Mm. are they an issue? Can one come back from this sort of situation and this sort of behaviour and move back into society and just become normal?
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, it depends what you mean by normal. But, I I mean, I think, like, there is that, that, you know, the level of moral injury this will have caused or has caused, uh, you know, is extensive uh, and i think there are you know far-reaching consequences of that i don't think that there can just be a readjustment to to normal yeah there's i think there's a there's a lot of soul searching that that people will obviously be be doing now and into the future and and I think there is just there is a shift required from uh, you know that sort of that focus on a warrior culture and what it is to be a warrior to being an ethical professional soldier. And that shift does need to happen and or it has been happening in defence, but it really needs to I think perhaps some more explicit ownership over what that that means and looks like.
1: Right. And look, we're really getting people you know outside the defence force saying that you know we should basically this is what happens in war and you basically should should leave the soldiers alone and and questioning the whole idea of prosecutions and, and taking decorations away is that appropriate or does that help or is that just something to be expected
2: the resistance to it yes yeah I, I, I mean I'm not surprised by it I do I suppose when I see that those comments on social media and and people challenging whether or not that should happen. I, I do question whether or not they they appreciate the extent of what's happened and that it's not just about the, you know, those sort of 19 per- alleged perpetrators and, and those alleged war crimes. It's about the, you know, how the environment that was perhaps conducive to those people being so empowered that they were able to conceive and conceal those behaviours. Uh, how did that take hold and and what were people's role in that uh, in general over that time so i think that's that that's why questions of removing the unit citations you know it it is very symbolic and it acts as a a really forced forced reminder that uh you know that that this has occurred and really can't can't happen again
1: there's been uh, a suggestion from the war memorial that that this information about this investigation and and whatever follows should be included in the Afghanistan exhibits. And there's been quite a lot of pushback against that from some people who say it it certainly shouldn't be. Now, do you believe that that will help the nation acknowledge and deal with it?
2: I mean, I think it has to happen. I think it has to, there has to be an accurate reflection of what's happened, good and bad. And there has to be a reminder, because we can't ever let this happen again, and you can't. It can't be something that's just sort of forgotten and moved past. It's too significant and too important to our history and the history of the defence force to uh, have it dismissed.
1: Samantha, thanks very much.
2: Thanks, Brendan.
0: For many, if not all, countries across the Pacific, climate change is the leading national security issue, with many countries already seeing the impacts of climate change in their communities. The election of Joe Biden has left the region and countries across the globe cautiously optimistic that the US will take a leading role in driving global climate action. Anastasia Kepeda speaks with Ben Bohane, Pacific Specialist and Communications Director at ANU's Australia Pacific Security College.
3: Today in the studio, we have Ben Bohain and he's the Communications Manager at the Australia Pacific Security College. He is actually a specialist in the region, having been a photojournalist uh, looking at conflict and religion in the Pacific and the Asia-Pacific more broadly for over 30 years, uh, and someone who has allegedly the biggest photo library on the region in the world. So that just underscores his commitment and and knowledge of the region. Welcome, Ben.
4: Thanks, Anastasia.
3: So first of all, we wanted to talk about the Biden win and climate change and immediate reactions in the Pacific to those events.
4: Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of things we could say with some degree of certainty, and that is Biden has promised that he'll sign up to the Paris Agreement on his first day in office. So he's already signalling in advance that climate change is going to be a major feature of his strategy and presidency he's appointed john kerry to be his climate envoy so i think that'll all go down very well Mm -hmm. in the pacific climate change is routinely now listed as the number one security issue for the pacific it crops up in all the pacific island forum communiques every year and yes is is absolutely a major Existential issue for the Pacific. So, the climate change thing. I think we can say with some degree of certainty, America will be back in in a role that the Pacific will see taking a leading role in in addressing that.
3: So, do you think Pacific nations will become even more confident in expressing their particular view on on climate change because of America's support? I know that Frank Bainimarama has invited Biden to PIF next year. Also note today that Joe Biden is saying that Paris is not enough and he wants to go further. Um, So we we can probably expect even more from Joe Biden than we perhaps have thought.
4: Yeah, look, you know, you get the sense that he's doing it, um, obviously for the environmental reasons uh, and and the sake of the planet. There's also probably an economic element to that, which is, and I even saw stuff out of um, General Motors in Detroit wanting to pivot also to to electric cars. And so it's really about transitioning the US economy as well. Uh, and there'll be a flow on effect, I guess, into the Pacific. And, you know, the more technology that goes into, you know, investing in renewables, whether it's solar or batteries and that sort of thing, will also be important in terms of that strategic competition with China because China's also mm-hmm. a, a large mm-hmm producer of renewable technology which the pacific is benefiting from i can say um you know just in terms of the price point and and availability so it's it's coming in at both levels perhaps it's it's addressing the policy issue that yes we really need to grapple with climate change uh, in an environmental and a global sense but also there may be some economic and product-based elements to it as well
3: is there any variation in the region on climate change as being the primary way in which national security threat is is framed?
4: It's generally understood in its broadest terms that it is, you know, a major issue for the Pacific. There's very little, I've seen very little dissent on that within the Pacific. It's, it's a pretty generally accepted idea that it is happening, that it has to be addressed, people are living with it. Um, you know, I, I've seen it firsthand myself and all it takes is talking to a few chiefs you know in coastal communities will tell you you know how far the seas come up and reclaim their beach mm-hmm. and you'll see coconut stumps out there 100 200 meters out to sea and I've been in a few places where the chiefs have said you know that was the shoreline when I was mm-hmm. a boy so that's that's where you can really start to visualise it. And, and so Pacific Islanders have, have really come. I think they were asking those questions before they had the answer, you know. Yes, yeah. Um, why it was happening. And now they can really they understand say, the science yeah. is there. The only small variation might be, you know, the sorts of information some islanders might be exposed to. Um, and if we're talking about the the Trump-Biden thing, the Pacific is very Christian, it plays an important role in all their communities and there will be a small percentage of Pacific Islanders that were in the Trump camp uh, for whatever reason and particularly because a lot of evangelical Christians bought into the Trump sort of story and because that is a climate-denying story, mm. then yes, you're going to have a small percentage that may have, you know, drunk bat Kool-Aid and have taken that on board, but... Not enough to change long, the politics of the It's region. not going to change the politics <clears throat> and the overwhelming kind of majority who can see mm. climate change as a really important threat to be addressed.
3: So from a p- Pacific perspective, what does Australia need to do now? Now that Biden's, Biden's in in the White House, there's going to be a big pivot from the US on climate. How does Australia cope with those realities from the perspective of of the Pacific?
4: Australia is looking increasingly isolated in terms of its policy on climate change and we have to deal with that, frankly. Relations in the Pacific are, are pretty good and Australia's done a lot as part of the step up. There's a number of areas where, you know, that cooperation is really well received we can't sort of be dangling money and material stuff if the policy setting itself is increasingly at odds with the rest of the world, and, and that's what it is. So we do have to you know, make some policy changes here if we're going to keep step with Pacific expectations and an incoming Biden administration.
3: Um, I think that's an important point because Australia would often argue, "Look, we've done a lot on climate change. We've we've given the um, the region five hundred million um, for renewable energy investment um, and other climate change related projects." That really happened in two thousand and nineteen, but the region was pretty lukewarm about that. So, what you're saying is they really want Australia to take a kind of a leadership position globally to address the root causes of climate change.
4: They they do expect Australia to take a leadership role on this, Uh, and frankly, we haven't. And so we can provide the material and we can somehow compensate for it by giving them a bunch of solar panels or whatever, but ultimately they're looking for that political policy leadership and there is a danger that Australia is Mm. isolated on this very important policy setting.
3: So there is no policy carbon offset that Australia can (laughs) give a few million to renewable stuff, but still remain Um, an outlier in climate. The rest of the world however is getting into the Pacific and giving lots of money to climate change projects. So the most recent announcement was uh, um, uh, the the region's biggest solar farm in Fiji that's happening in, in concert with the World Bank which Australia supports and has given money to the fund, the World Bank fund that is running that. In terms of these big packages. Can island nations support that level of investment? Do they need help with dealing with that level of investment?
4: If these are large capital investments, then the economists will say, you know, you've got to be careful of Dutch disease and too much money suddenly sloshing into an economy can create issues with, uh, you know, with the way local countries, small countries, can absorb that kind of finance. But I think the bigger issue is about the capacity of Pacific Island leaders and their bureaucracies to wade through the terms and conditions and the negotiations and the fine print around accessing climate financing. And there has been quite a bit of frustration, I'd have to say, among Pacific Island states at the sort of hoops of fire they've got to jump through to Mm. tick all the boxes to access it. So I think it is incumbent on allies of the Pacific, Australia, you know, the US, whoever, to really simplify and make it much easier for Pacific Island states to be able to access that climate financing because, frankly, you know, within these bureaucracies, we're we're dealing with very small bureaucracies in the Pacific and some of those people are very overworked and sit on a whole bunch of different committees and oversee a lot of stuff. They just don't have the time or capacity to have to wade through lots of, requirements in order to access it. So it really is incumbent on us to make that a much simpler and easier thing for Pacific Island states to access.
3: So also looking at the kinds of renewable projects, solar seems to be good everywhere in the Pacific. Places in Melanesia and Fiji seem to be good at biomass and geothermal. Is solar going to be the renewable technology for the Pacific, do you think?
4: Solar is a pretty good default. You've got geothermal, certainly because there's, we're on the ring of fire and a lot of countries will have access to that as a resource. What I've learned is that there's a fair bit of capital investment that, that goes into creating that initial geothermal production. The other thing it's dependent on is whoever owns the poles and wires because you can have a great geothermal prospect, but it's still got to go out across poles mm. and wires And unless you've then got a deal, a good deal going with whoever has the contract to supply electricity, and that's often where these things get stuck. So by way of example, where I've lived in Vanuatu, we had a geothermal project proposed, which would have cost, you know, close to $100 million to get. But where it fell apart was they couldn't come to an arrangement with Unelco, which was the French company that has the concession to provide electricity and, you know, the cost per unit was too high and so it fell over. So there's a range of things in order to make that happen. Promising stuff, obviously, around uh, wave power, Mm -hmm. around wind power. Of course, battery is a whole other issue. You can have sources of great power, but unless you can store it cheaply and effectively – um, not everyone can afford a Tesla battery in the Pacific. No, no. so you know there's, there's those sorts of issues, practical issues, I guess, and that will help decide the kind yeah. of suite of of renewables that will take place. But it's pretty much a no brainer for the Pacific to get more and more involved in things like the renewable factor, partly because they've they've got access to those energy sources, but also because one of their major expenses. Up till now has been importing diesel fuel mm. which is generally is running their their generators and providing petrol, you know, for cars and boats. And that is expensive and getting more and more expensive.
3: And expensive for individual citizens.
4: Expensive for individual yeah. citizens. So Pacific Islands, you know, often have some of the highest electricity prices, you know, in the world or the Asia Pacific because they're having to source diesel that's coming, you know, out of the Middle East via Singapore or Australia or whatever. So I think they can see the value. One thing I wonder about, it's probably not for this discussion, is I want to know when are we going to get solar outboard motor engines, you know, that would revolutionise life in the Pacific and have a great impact on fishing because I suspect that's why a lot of Pacific nations are taking the easy money from distant water fishing nations that are increasingly fishing out their Mm. waters because their fuel is being subsidised, like from China, for instance. Uh, Taiwan, Japan, you know, they get fuel subsidies. The Pacific local onshore fisheries, they can't afford that. So if we can get a a diesel outboard engine (laughs) that's solar powered. That can convert to solar. That's just a personal thing, I think we should be looking at. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's out there doing it, but that's the kind of development I think that would be really beneficial to the Pacific.
3: I think that's true. I think it's um, especially in developing economies, some of those smaller technologies are the ones that really make the difference. Solar shipping is, is something that's under development. It's probably an underdeveloped area in renewable tech, but would make a massive difference worldwide um, given the fuel consumption of the international shipping industry, for example, as well as local fisheries. One thing we also wanted to touch on today was disaster resilience um, in the region too. The Pacific is going to be heavily impacted by extreme weather events under climate change. How is the region preparing for that? How do they see Australia's support on that issue?
4: Australia's been pretty good in terms of its disaster response in the region. We mobilise fairly quickly when cyclones hit, earthquakes, et cetera, et cetera. I was in Vanuatu when Cyclone Pam hit. Five years ago, which was pretty devastating. So, Australia and New Zealand responded quickly. What's been interesting this year was I was living in Vanuatu. We had, apart from COVID, we also then had Cyclone Harold come through. And that was a real test for disaster resilience because, for the first time, Pacific nations really had to come up with a homegrown response. Donors were pretty much left out in the international. NGO community because of borders being closed. And again, the Pacific, in its own resilient way, stepped up and pretty, you know, did a pretty good job in, in working to utilize its internal assets. And so we saw, you know, there were some interesting insights into that, particularly around food and how, you know, cyclones don't often hit an entire country, especially in archipelago nations. They might hit the north as they did this time, the north of Vanuatu, which meant southern islands like Tana could then come up with the root crops and, and other food stuff, which has the advantage of being, A, more nutritious than white rice, which is the, the default kind of humanitarian response. So the food was more nutritious, plus you're purchasing from local people, so you're helping the economy. It's shorter distances, so all kinds of wins around that when we can source the kind of humanitarian response locally. The downside potentially was there was international response that came from Australia, France, New Zealand, and others with Air Force planes with help. And they some of them sat on the Time Act for Rush. two weeks. Okay. As I guess we can say an unnecessary overabundance of caution. Mm-hmm. In COVID. So that did delay some of the response. I think the other thing that was worth looking at is the sorts of shelter kits that go in, you know, in the aftermath of a disaster. For decades, I think the, the default has been to sort of immediately send in these big plastic tarps, but often they don't last too long and then you've got all this plastic. So there's been a move and I think this most recent cyclone uh, helped spur this momentum where there was no more plastic tarps and it was more about roofing iron and timber and so you can get into a much more sort of permanent housing rebuilding from there so you know it might cost a little bit more but then it's a more permanent solution um, and, and a lot more kind of environmentally friendly
3: So basically you're saying, were there lessons learned that will be carried on into the future here about local resilience and local solutions?
4: Yes, I I think so. And I think Cyclone Harold was really a a litmus test for that. And we can assume that the Pacific doesn't want to go back to the old ways. I think Mm. they found the advantages of going with a local response and one of that was that they were able to coordinate among themselves without having all of these international NGOs and other donors Mm. all well-meaning and all wanting to help and do the right thing but that does create a lot of noise when you're when you're in that fog in the Mm. aftermath Um, and it can it can clutter the response and take up time so I think it may mean that in future these islands will take a lot more ownership of the disaster response and draw a lot more on local response and use international help as they see fit.
3: That's an interesting thing to say in light of uh, current geopolitics in the region. So I guess what you're saying here is that there is more and more moves and more confidence in sovereignty Um, and maintaining sovereignty and a desire to keep that going in the midst of uh, a geopolitical competition that uh, impinges on that in many ways.
4: Yes, I think these island nations want to assert their sovereignty in times of disaster just as much as they do in times of peace and learning how they can build that resilience going forward when they've had to invent it and, and really respond quickly on their own then I think that's given them perhaps the confidence to to maintain that sense of sovereignty and ownership of a disaster response in future.
3: So we can essentially expect a much stronger voice from the region on climate change and security in the future.
4: Yes, the Pacific already speaks loudly on climate change. It's already one of the most vocal areas of the world in terms of demanding better responses to climate change. Most of the world's on board people are setting their 2050 or 2060 targets there's a couple that still haven't um, and i think that's what the pacific is really looking for they're looking for leadership particularly from australia and and partners in the region to make it the number one it is the number one security issue and they're looking for the policy settings that reflect that
3: well thank you so much for coming in today ben and um look forward to having you perhaps in the future
0: This October, the UN marked the anniversary of Resolution 1325 and the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Whilst COVID-19 prevented big events to mark the occasion, different actors have used this as an opportunity to reflect on their progress in implementing the WPS agenda and increasing female participation in peacekeeping. Genevieve Feely speaks to Rachel Grimes. NATO ACT Liaison Officer to the UN, ICRC and NGOs, about her experiences working in the UN, NATO and UK Defence. All views expressed in this conversation are Rachel's personal views and not the views of her organisation.
5: Hi there, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining us today on Policy, Guns and Money. So, at the end of October, it was the 20th anniversary of the UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which was a resolution that launched the Women, Peace and Security Agenda at the United Nations and subsequently permeated through many other international organisations, governments and society more broadly. I thought I'd start off this interview by asking, how did you celebrate this milestone this year?
6: Oh, it was pretty muted, unfortunately, because of, dare I say it, the, the COVID word, but I did Um, Attend a couple of really good briefs, one by Civic, um, which was based in Ukraine. And also, I was able to listen to um, some really good um, presentations delivered by the George Washington University. Mm. So, yeah, it wasn't quite what I expected. A friend of mine, another military gender advisor, and I had said, Wouldn't it be great if we could get to the United Nations with a load of military gender advisors and celebrate 1325 in 2020? Maybe we'll celebrate her 21st. We all know that when you turn <laughs> it, it's way more significant than 20.
5: That's actually a fantastic idea I haven't heard yet. Yeah, I think that this year being um, kind of all virtual meant that there was a lot more for people like us in Australia to engage with the launch events, but it must have been a pretty muted response at the UN itself. Now, previously, you've worked for both the UN and NATO on WPS, both in the field in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and in HQ for the UN, and likewise, Iraq, Afghanistan and a number of other countries, as well as the NATO Committee for Gender, on Gender Perspectives. Um, I'd love to hear more about how these two organisations operationalize the WPS agenda. And I assume it's really different in some senses, but also probably similar in others. And I'd love to kind of get into that.
6: Um, Yeah, that's a really challenging question because I want to show loyalty to both organisations and I don't want to say that one is better than the other. And I suppose I'm coming from it, of course, just from my own personal experience so it was nato that introduced me to resolution 1325 back in 2009 i was quite a late developer i think but it, i suppose it's a it's a nascent subject even now unfortunately so nato introduced me to 1325 and the, I don't know if you know, Swanee Hunt's organization, Inclusive Security, they were helping the um, North, the, the NATO Center for Gender Perspectives run its annual conference. And, and that's where I first became aware of 1325. And it was quite nice because throughout my military career, I felt that there was some gender dynamic going on, but I didn't even really know what the word gender meant. And I, I was completely unaware of 1325. But after I went to that um, first conference in 2009, I I started to see uh, military life and women, peace and security very differently. And I suppose it's because of that knowledge and through going to something called the Nordic Centre for Gender in Military Operations, um, which is a two-week course, which it 's not a Na- it 's a nato accredited course but it 's not a NATO organization um, that two week course, which is predominantly for military officers, that gave me a much more sort of theoretical understanding of, of the Security Council resolutions, not just thirteen hundred and twenty five and it was from that that I was able to springboard into a job in the United nations so what would i say i would i would i feel that if you go into the United Nations It is challenging to meet somebody who does not know about the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And I think that that's because predominantly the UN is working in peacekeeping domains and clearly they they come across the... You know, this, the horrific unfairness of conflict and how it affects women and girls so disproportionately um, to men. But I'm not saying that men and boys are not affected by conflict either. Um, it's maybe taking a little bit longer for um, the, the member states that make up NATO for their military organisation. So I think in the UN, it, it's, it's more well known, whereas in a military organisation like NATO, although it's got really good policy, nations to be familiar with what women, peace and security is. Often within NATO, I come across military personnel who think that we're just talking about um, diversity and inclusion. Mm. And... In a way, I mean, Women, Peace and Security, it, it's not an unfortunate expression, but it is a term that can sometimes alienate um, a male-dominated audience. So I think that NATO will get up to the awareness that the UN it has reached. But you've got to be fair to both organisations and look at how, what, what sort of environment they're operating in on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Actually, maybe I'm going to
5: ask a bit of a controversial or tricky question, so you
6: don't have to answer it. But um,
5: your point just then about how, um, you know, the women, peace and security agenda could be seen as being quite alienating. Do you think it's time that we move to language more like gender, peace and security as opposed to women, peace and security? I know that people fall on two different sides because I don't really know where I fall yet.
6: Yeah. um, Well, my experience would be to avoid the word gender at all costs. And I hate to say that, but Mm. when you say gender, unfortunately, it's just becomes people think it's synonymous with women. And then they start saying, oh, you're, or they think that you're talking about LGBTQT. So I think that gender, peace and security is also misleading and could Mm. end up, again, alienating the messenger who's trying to convert quite a tough audience if we mm. just concentrate on the military. So if I was um, the Secretary General of the UN or NATO, I would probably want to encourage people, especially within military organizations, to adopt language such as human security and military operations. Mm. Because although I feel disloyal and a traitor to something that I'm completely committed to, I feel that the branding is damaging how we can get a male-dominated organization to implement it. And of course, there are some men out there. There are brilliant feminists who are men. There are great men out there who are in the military and who are doing work in this area. But I still walk into a a lecture theater and talk to male-dominated military organizations and I can see everyone roll their eyes to the ceiling because they They've got an inner bias about what I'm going to talk to them about. And so it's a trick to try and fool them and talk about things like human security instead. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I I, I would steer clear of gender, peace and security. But again, only in a military organization. I don't think we need to remove women, peace and security from the face of the earth. I think it's so important that we keep the focus on women because Mm. they are still not Equally heard as much as um, male leaders, or or even in, you know, post conflict uh, post conflict negotiations. No, thank you for that
5: perspective. I think it's actually really interesting hearing from someone who has worked in the military for so long on how these kind of terms work, because it is really different to the rest of the kind of field working on the women, peace and security agenda, and perhaps looking forward and. Looking to maybe other barriers and obstacles to implementation. What do you see as some of the biggest um, obstacles to the implementation of the agenda for military organisations over perhaps the next twenty years?
6: Well, I think if we, I'm, I'm just going to be really basic and look at 1325 in in the three P's of participation, prevention, and protection. I think that there's no problem in selling prevention to a military organisation. You know, it's it is clear to to everybody. It, it's only, a, it might be a few people that want to go out and fight, but the majority of people would like political agreements to be made so that we don't have to send um, our personnel out to countries thousands of miles away. So I think prevention is understood. But I feel that participation, and again, I'm looking at it from a military perspective, but it's quite challenging to persuade a male um, leader and, and unfortunately, at the moment, the majority of the military leadership, the chiefs of defence staff are male. Um, it is quite challenging to get them to sit down and listen to women from civil society or indeed men from civil society who are talking about um, looking at the, the conflict from the lens of the civilians, from, from women, girls, men and boys. So I think that the participation piece has quite a way to go on the engagement. And I also feel that if we look at the problem that the UN has at the moment, it's got 85,000 troops deployed, but only about four or 5,000 of them are women. Mm. So it's also quite challenging to persuade a military that when they are looking at their force generation, don't just look at your infantry or your cavalry units, but Think about what's the role. Your role is to go and engage with and talk to local populations. So maybe if you had patrols that were made up of men and women, you'd get better feedback from the civilian societies that you're operating amongst. So I think, yeah, a little bit more work on participation. And I, totally the protection aspect yes, people understand that they have to protect civilians. But sometimes there is um, a reticence and a concern that. Should a civilian, a, a woman, and it's highly unlikely, but should a woman come up to a, a man on a on a military patrol and say, oh, I've been raped, please help me. People still in the military are perhaps thinking that they've got to, that this isn't, that they can't respond, that they can't help. And I mean, the main way that the military should be referring to that sort of incident is to know already which NGOs and which UN organizations are in the area and to call them. So it's not a big thing. But trying to persuade your military that's deploying to, say, Mali, that they've got to map out all the NGOs and IOs in their area, they're still focused on um, the insurgents and the people carrying Kalashnikovs. Mm. So you've, got this, um, you've got a little bit of resistance that you've got to overcome to persuade them that it will make them better at their job if only they listen to the local population more.
5: Mm. So really cross-pollinisation kind of between the military and civil society is going to be a few yeah, next 20 year Yeah,
6: definitely. I mean, mm. And I think that to extend that, I think NATO's doing some really good work at the moment just to sort of give them a shout-out mm. in that they have got in, um, NATO headquarters in Brussels that they now invite civil society twice a year to come in and talk to, um, I think they get to talk to the Secretary General, I'm, I'm not sure, but they, they do get to come in and shape the conversation. But what I'd like to see is, I'd like to see all military units that are deploying for their commanding officer and, and their sort of, we call it the J3, but the, the plans people to sit with organizations before they deploy and then when they deploy to meet people that are on the fie- in the field that are from that same organization, just to get a wider understanding of what the security situation is, because often it is not just about worrying about an IED or an ambush. Actually, it's often just trying to have a presence on a market day so that people can go into the market without being harassed. Mm. sometimes by their own country's police mm. or military, unfortunately. So it is trying to broaden the military mindset into thinking that civil society has a part in the planning room.
5: No, that's a really, really fantastic point. So thank you so much for coming on today. This has, I think, been a really insightful and useful stock take of the WPS agenda in a military context as the anniversary
6: passes. Brilliant. Thank you for having me.
0: That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode next week.